If you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi, and we're going to turn to the third chapter. Malachi is in the Old Testament. It is Malachi. It is not Malachi. Um, he was from Israel, not Italy. Okay? So Malachi chapter 3 is where we will be today. Over the past uh, few weeks, uh, we've been looking at this, this idea, this, this series, this theme of God's character and God's personality and God's attributes, trying to get a picture of, of who God is. And so over the last few weeks, we've been showing you different personalities, different character traits of God, all in an effort to get a clear, accurate picture of who God is. One of the, the quotes that we've been sharing with you comes from a former pastor and writer, A.W. Tozer, who says this, what comes to our minds when we think about God, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God, God, who is he? What does he do? How does he live? How does he act? What does he mean to you in your life? When you think about God, Tozer writes, that's the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you. And so what we believe about him drives our relationships. What we think about God drives how we think of ourselves. What we think about God drives what we think about other people and and the world around us. And what we think about God drives our relationship with him. And so what we think about him is vitally important. And over the past few weeks, again, we've been trying to paint an accurate picture of who God is so that we can all start on a, on a kind of same foundation. We've been opening his scriptures. We've been opening God's revelation of himself to us, his, his word, his Bible, to see what does he say about himself. Because if we don't have a clear picture of who God is, our life can get a little screwy. Our life can get a little weird. Our perspective can be a little off kilter. It's easy for people to to have a skewed view of God and not really understand who he is and have that affect their everyday living. And, And as I say that, I'm not just talking about the David Koresh's of the world, and I'm not just talking about the people with the purple Nikes who all took their own lives. I'm talking about not those kinds of of nonsensical extremes. I'm talking about the extremes even within our own reality where where some people would be so extreme with God on the liberal side because of a warped view of Him that they would live their lives in, in certain ways and live in certain standards and and uh, conduct themselves in one way and, and believe that God says this is okay and they would try to prove that. On the other side, some people are so skewed with God that they're, they're not liberal, they're almost pharisaically legalistic and, and to follow God means to do this and so we do this and, and they're, they're more identified not necessarily by what they do but what they don't do um, and so they have these lists going on and really so the, what we our picture of God really does drive how we react to our world around us. Our picture of God also reacts and drives how we react 
to Him. Because maybe today you're sitting here and, and you don't really find yourself in, in either one of those extremes. You're not a liberal off the charts thinking that, that you can live your life any way you want and God's just going to wink and nod and everything's going to be okay. And, and you're not a pharisaical legalistic person who is more known for what you don't do than what you do do. Maybe you find yourself in the middle. You find yourself in the middle and, and you just realize that there are certain moments and there are certain times in your life that your picture of God really does alter your worship of Him and how you respond to the world around you. I heard a story from a gentleman the other day that, that said he was so trapped in the the frustration of his life. He was so trapped in the sin that he was involved in. He had a clear awareness of the division between him and God. But he was so trapped in that sin that he said, he said, God can't forgive me. When I look at what I did in my life, when I look at how it's affected my relationships, this gentleman said, there was a point in his life where he said, God, I knew I, my perspective was God could not forgive me. So let's play that out. If our perspective then is that God cannot forgive us because of something that we do, then as this gentleman testified to, he couldn't forgive himself. He lived a life of, of total frustration, a total anxiety, because he could not then forgive himself for what he had done. That translated into his extended family. And his thought process was, if God can't forgive me and I can't forgive myself, there's no way my family's going to forgive me. That's the thought process. I'll take it one step further. What's the next natural step? Then I can't forgive others. See, when we start with a, a twisted perspective, on God. It may not be radically extreme and it may not even be nonsensical, but but even in an everyday living, if, if we have a twisted picture of God, it really does affect how we respond to God. It really does affect how we interact with God. It really does affect how we worship God. And the trickle down is it really affects how we view ourselves and our relationships with other people. Someone once said that the revelation of God's name, His character, His attributes, and all that pertain to Him directly or indirectly affects our worship of Him. But Tozer was right. Our, our view of God is the most important thing about us. How we picture Him drives our relationship with Him, and our relationship with others. Today what we're going to look at is the attribute or the, the characteristic that's called the immutability of God. Immutability. Now that's just a fancy $500 word so that I can prove I went to college. Um, but the immutability of God simply means this. God does not change. God does not change. Our whole worship package today has been wrapped around that thought that God is not changing. God is forever. God is forever faithful. God is forever loving. God is always there. God is always with us. God is always 
around us. God is unshakable. God is unmovable. God is unstoppable. God is, as we just sang, unchangeable. Pointing us all back to this one characteristic, this one attribute of God, that He is immutable, that God does not change. Now change, it's one of those words that, you know, depending on who you are, it's you either love change or you hate change, right? There are some people, and the room today is probably divided. When we talk about change, there are some of you that are like, oh yeah, I'm all about change. I've got the newest this and I've got the newest that. Can I, I, got a, I didn't say this in the first service. I had a confession to make. I, I asked my wife to stay home on Tuesday this last week. I asked her to stay home because I missed the UPS guy on Monday. And so I asked her to stay home on Tuesday um, because I got the new iPhone. And I had it before anybody else did, right? So I asked her to stay because I love, change doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm one of those guys, I can roll with it. I'm a gadget guy. That's cool. I got the new iPhone. I've got 9 million apps already. It's it's already outdated, but, but I'm already, I, I don't, change doesn't shake me that much. But in the room today, I bet there are some people that are saying here, hey buddy, don't change anything. Don't touch my, the color scheme of my house. Don't talk to me about my car. Don't touch my refrigerator. Don't you dare touch my oven. We're not changing anything. I like things like they were, have always been. If it ain't broke, we ain't fixing it. We ain't repairing it. We're not touching it. I hate change, right? We got that in the room today. You either love it or you hate it. The irony is this. You know the saying. The only thing that doesn't change is what? Change. The only thing that, I don't know what you said, but (laughs) the only thing that doesn't change is change. You cannot change the fact that things are going to change. It, it's constant. It's always, it's always happening around us. We know it. We live it. We embrace it. Some of us embrace it reluctantly, but we embrace it. Change affects all of us. We've all changed. Just look in the mirror. We've all changed, right? I have a picture of our youth pastor, Keith Dreyf, right? Him and his daughter, Emily, a great picture, right? Have you ever seen Keith prior to? Here's what he looked like before. Now, maybe it's changed for the better, right? Right? I I don't know. See, that's what happens when you play with Facebook. He does stuff like that, and then I grab it and use it. So, anyway, I did have his wife's permission on that. So, here's another couple that you know, right? The Snyders. There they are. Great couple, right? Have you ever seen them before? Look at this. I hope you can see that. I hope you can squint if you have to. Cover your, that's a great picture. Um, in all sincerity, I was telling uh, Ruth and Dave this week, I love that picture of them. That's their wedding picture. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a candid shot. You know, it wasn't staged. Somebody just popped their head in the door, took that picture. It's, it reminds me, I just thought of this this morning, it reminds me of one of those pictures when you go to buy a wallet in the store. And you open it, there it is, right? Doesn't that look like, that's awesome. I would, if that picture was in my new wallet, I wouldn't even take it out. I just, hey, did you see my new wallet? Hey, who's, I don't know, just nice picture. Just love it. Change for some of us, you know, that was great. Change for some of us is, is healthy and good and, and we, we just can't escape it. We all change. Change is all around us. 
We change our clothes. We change our cars. We change our... I just changed homes. We change TVs. We change computers. We change our exercise routines, our meal plans, our favorite restaurants. We change our furniture. We change our dish soap. We change our dishwasher soap. We change our body soap. We change our bar soap. We change our soap on the rope. We change all kinds of things. Change is everywhere. It's constant. It just keeps moving. We, this is the world that we live in because things wear out. Things break down. And so we've got to change it out and get something new, right? There are also changes because of changes of seasons or eras or, or generations. How many of you drove a car to church today or rode in a car to church today? That's it? Okay. All right. Okay. This is all in. Everybody's playing. Anybody horse and buggy today? Right? Now, did, the, did, did your need from going from point A to point B change? No. But today, we jump in the car and we drive. Back in the day, I don't know how far back. Never mind. I was going to. Never mind. Um, back in the day, some people rode in horse and buggies. Today, majority of us ride in a car or a bus or a train or an airplane. There aren't any hitching posts anymore outside of places. Times change. And so we change. Things, uh, features are added and enhanced and developed. How many of how many, I'm sure many of you have, have upgraded your cable package in the last six years, right? Something new is out there. You, now you have, forget, forget the blinking VCR light, right? You're trying to set up your DVR, right? To make sure that you've got all your... Now, if you don't know what a DVR is, you haven't made that change yet. But this is the reality. You call Time Warner or DirecTV or Dish or somebody and you say, Hey, I just saw your commercial on the upgrade. I want the upgrade. How many of you want the upgrade when it's available? We all do that. We, We look for and we look for change. Change happens. It's not necessarily negative, but but change is everywhere. This is the world that we live in. This is our context. This is the grid that we run our life through. Change. Here's the challenge. If we're not careful, we're going to take that grid of change and apply it to God. And what we experience every day in our living and in our world and in our culture and in our season and in our era, we're going to apply to God. And some of us, some of us will say, well, surely God changes. Surely God will change how he acts. I mean, yeah, I read it in the book that, you know, there's a plan of salvation, that there's a plan of hope, that that God wants all people to be saved and he set a plan in motion. Yeah, I read that, but come on. That was back then. Times have changed, man. You were maybe from the 60s. Now it's, dude, times have changed, right? God's not really like that. God's real loose now. He He just lets things go. He doesn't really care. See, if we're not careful, we take our grid of the context of the world that we live in and we apply it to a holy God. The thing is that throughout the Scriptures, as we read God's revelation of Himself to us, 
Throughout the scriptures, God is showing us and telling us, one of my attributes, one of the characteristics of me is this. I want you to understand this. I do not change. In my nature, I do not change. In my character, I do not change. Who I am does not change. God's priorities, God's promises do not change. We speak of God as a holy God. God in His holiness does not change. He was always holy. He is holy. He will always be holy. God in His justice does not change. As we think of time, back then God was just. You see, God is timeless. So time doesn't even apply to God. We use words like past, present, and future just to manage life. God is timeless, doesn't even think in the realm of time. So God has always been just. God is. God just is. God is just. We think in terms of past, present, future. In the past, yeah, God was just. In the present, God is just. In the future, God will be just because God does not change. He is timeless and doesn't change. So he's always holy. He's always just. He's always loving. He's always omnipotent. He's always omniscient. He's always in all places at all times hearing our hearts. God doesn't change in his nature. God doesn't change in his character. And if we've learned anything by reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, to what will happen from Genesis to how we understand the beginning of humanity all the way through our recorded history up until the book of Revelation as prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. As we read anything in our scriptures, we understand that God's promises do not change and God's plan does not change. God has always loved people. God has always desired a relationship with people. And God has always, always, from the book of Genesis, always had a plan to restore and redeem the broken relationship between God and man. Always. Timeless. It's there. God does not change. It doesn't matter what season we're in. It doesn't matter what era we're in. It doesn't matter what's going on in our hearts. It doesn't matter how worn out or broken down our lives our homes, our families have become. God's promises, God's truth, God's plan does not change. Always holy, always just, always loving, always merciful, always filled with grace. Here in Malachi chapter 3, there's a great picture of this. In Malachi chapter C, we see God's justice on one hand, balanced with God's grace on the other, working in complete harmony with each other because he is immutable. On one hand, we have his justice. On one hand, we have his grace. Centered in the middle of all of that is the fact that he does not change. And because of that, these two things work perfectly together in harmony. Now before we get into Malachi, let me set the the context for you just a little bit. Malachi is the last book 
of the Old Testament. And you may or may not know the books of the Bible are not listed chronologically, but this one actually does close the Old Testament. The time of this writing, 400, 444 BC, this was, this was the last book written, the last prophecy given, the last recorded book in the canon given before God went silent. For 400 years, God was silent with his people. And from the time of Malachi's writing until the birth of Christ, where Matthew begins to record that, and that scenario and that situation and those events, God was quiet. He had said everything that he needed to say to his people. He had told them about the law. He had told them about salvation. He had told them about redemption. He had told them how to restore the relationship. He had begged them to come back to him. He saw the wickedness that they lived in and and begged his people to return to him. He wrote about it. He prophesied about it. He said, look, this is what you can expect in the future. Look forward. Look ahead. This is going to happen. A Messiah is coming. Christ is coming. The Lord is coming. Your day of redemption comes near. The day is coming where you will have a Savior. You will have somebody that you can turn to. You will have a cross. You will have an empty tomb. It's not now. It's in the future. This is what Israel was listening. This is what they were living under. And they kept hearing it. It's not now. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then for 400 years, God went quiet. If people had questions, they had the books, they had the prophecies, they had the stories, they had the the priests to teach them God's precepts. They They had all that they needed. And it's in that context that Israel, God's people, God's chosen people, within that context we see Israel filled with priests who are corrupt. It's in that context that we see wicked practices of those people who were called to be God's people. It's in that context that we see the, the false security of a nation who are called God's people, their false security of their relationship with God. It's in that context that Israel is filled with hypocrisy, infidelity, divorce, false worship and arrogance. It's in that context that God's people for thousands of years of hearing promise after promise after promise after promise of God saying through His prophets, through His priests, through His messengers, the day is coming, the day is coming, the day is coming. I will bring redemption. I will bring restoration. They kept hearing it time after time, generation after generation. And it's in that context that the people of Israel grew cynical because they didn't see it. It wasn't in my lifetime. Hey God, I thought you were going to and you didn't. Where are you? What's going on? That's the context that Malachi is writing then. And so Malachi writes these words. God speaks to Malachi and says, say this to my people. This is from God. And he says this, chapter 3, verse 1. God says, I will send. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. Again, He's saying to His people, I'm going to do it. You've just got to hang in there. 
As we understand that and as we read that, we know that the people grew cynical because they couldn't see it. It didn't happen. And God went silent for 400 years. And generation after generation held on to this Old Testament book and they said, where is it? Where is it? We today sitting here on the other side of the New Testament, we can look back and we we realize what Malachi was writing about. Because we understand that prophecy had been fulfilled. When he said that I'm going to send a messenger, we know that that messenger is John the Baptist. We look back over the New Testament and we can see, ah, there it is. There's the story. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way. Prepare the way for who? Who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? It says in Malachi, then suddenly the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that you are seeking after, he will suddenly appear. And then we get it. I got it. John the Baptist came, prepared the way, and all this. And then when we didn't expect it, when the people didn't expect it, Jesus was born and Jesus was presented. Remember, he was presented as a child at the temple. And what does it say here? Malachi said, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. We sit on the back end of the New Testament, reading back through what God has already done. And we look at the people of Israel in the book of Malachi and just say, just hold on, you should have held 400 years. You couldn't wait 400 years. Can you wait 400 years? What would you do for 400 years? We sit on the backside of the fulfilled prophecy. And I think there are times when we're just like the Israelites at the end of the Old Testament. And we look around and we say, God, you, you, you said you'd do all this stuff. You said that you would fulfill this promise. You said that you would do this. You said that you would save our nation. You said that you would, if we drew near to you, you would draw. Where are you, God? I think a lot of times we find ourselves just like the Israelites. Skeptical, cynical, questioning God. What in the world are you doing? I keep trusting and I keep hoping, but I don't see any results. I keep trusting and I keep hoping, but I don't see anything happening. Are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want us to do? Are you sure that I can trust you? Malachi writes of the preparation and the prophecy of what would come, and it came true. As Malachi was writing to the people who were cynical, who were questioning, he goes on and God says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now what Malachi, what you got to check, is in verse 3, Malachi is just fast forwarded past the birth of Christ. Now Malachi is recording God's prophecy of the second coming of Christ. Christ came already to the temple, to the people from John the Baptist. Now when we drop into verse 3, Malachi, through God, is explaining, there will be another day. There will be another day when Christ is going to come, and He's going to come like a refiner, like one who is refining gold and silver. There's going to be a day when Christ comes And he's going to come a second time and he's going to be like one who is laundering a garment and washing it clean. There's a day when he's coming again. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And this is what God is saying. You've got to watch this because this is what's going to happen. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold. 
Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Verse 4, And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. Then he says this in verse 5, So I will come to put you on trial. There's a day coming when when Christ is going to come and we're going to be put on trial by God. He's going to look at our life and how we've lived our lives and how we've acted and He's going to put us on trial. It's part of His justice. It's part of Him being just for eternity, for all time. God is just. And so He cannot act outside of His justice. He must act within it. And He said, I will. There will come a time when I'll put you on trial. When I will judge your hearts and your intentions and your motives. And He says that that I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. Maybe for us, we're sitting here today and we're saying, hey, I don't, you know, I'm not a sorcerer. I don't get any of that. Maybe I'm skating on this one, right? Maybe I can slide by on God's judgment and His, on His judgment. You know, He's going to be quick to testify against adulterers and perjurers and against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. He's going to judge everyone. And I think in that judgment, we're all indicted. I don't think any of us escape that. Especially when you read the New Testament and you see how Christ explains who those who are liars and those who are adulterers and those who have committed these sins. And it begins to unfold and it begins to, all of us begin to understand that we don't escape it. We don't escape Christ and God's judgment. Then he, God says this, but don't, do not fear me. But do not fear me. You see, all of this justice and judgment, it's going to come. But don't fear me. Because in verse 6, he writes this, I, the Lord, do not change. There will be justice and there will be judgment. You see, if we stopped reading right there, if we stopped reading right there and we didn't move on and understand that God said, but don't fear me. If all we stopped with was judgment and justice and there's a day of reckoning coming and there's a day where I'm going to be on trial and my sins are going to be exposed. You know what? Some of us have friends and some of us have family members that that read this stuff about God, these attributes of God, and, you say, and who say, yep, right there, that's why. That's why I don't follow Him. That's why I don't believe in God. God is just a vengeful, mean person who just wants to slap me and strike me down every time I step out of bounds. God just wants to yank me back into a relationship. God just wants to move and, and hit me and slap me, discipline me back into line. See, that's the, I don't, I don't want to serve that. If that's God, help me out. And I would say, I agree with them. If that's the only thing we know about God, I don't want to serve Him either. When you think about a child who has grown up in a hard home, a child who is afraid of their father, 
Maybe the father is violent. Maybe the father is nasty and mean. I think a child reacts in one of two ways when they know dad's coming home. They run and hide. Completely afraid of what's going to happen when dad gets there. Or the child waits for dad to come home and steps right in line and out of fear is obedient to the father. Out of fear says, yes, sir. Out of fear does everything that he's told to do. Out of fear doesn't raise his voice. Out of fear doesn't ask a question because we know what happens when we ask questions. Out of fear doesn't truly identify what is going on inside of him because we know what happens when we give an opinion to a strict and angry and mean father. So we have a child who walks in obedience, obedience driven out of fear. I don't want to serve that God either. We have to keep reading because Malachi says, Malachi says that God has said, but do not fear me. So there's this, this justice that seems hard and heavy, but there's this transition where God is saying, but hang on, I do not change. And because I do not change, yes, there will be justice. Yes, there will be judgment. But on the other end, there is also grace and hope and love and compassion. He says, the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. There will be judgment, but don't be afraid of the judgment because you won't be destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Here's what he says. Return to me and I will return to you. Just return to me and I will return to you. God moves from the pending justice that He will hand out to the hope of grace and love that comes through Christ that He introduced in verse 1. Although He's holy, just, and righteous, He's also loving, good, and kind, and compassionate. We can trust that God will be filled with grace and mercy and compassion because He says in that anchor verse number 6, I, the Lord, do not change. I will bring mercy. I will bring grace. I will bring compassion. Both will occur. And I do not change. Verse 14, God says through Malachi, You have said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Remember Malachi's context. Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the promises. Unfulfilled. And what's happening all around them is that the evildoers prosper. Those who live in sin their lives unaffected. There's nothing different about them. In fact, they're making money. They got things going on on the side. They're having a good time. They're living it up. All I've ever done for the last generation, all I've ever done is followed God. All I've ever done is lived by His precepts. All I've ever done is walked in His ways. And what good has it gotten me? Where have I gotten in my life? What has God brought to me? It's futile. 
Why should I do this? Why should I live this way? It's absolutely worthless. And God says, I understand what you're saying. It sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? God prepares a path before us and and offers us the opportunity to to walk in a relationship with Him. He offers hope and peace and and healing all all in the context of of His holiness. But we look around and we wonder, but to what avail? It's futile. It would be futile if we forgot verse 6. It would be futile if God was changing all the time. It would be futile if there was no verse 6. But God said, I do not change. You can rest in it. You can go to the bank on it that I do not change. I will be there for you for all time. I will bring you hope. I will bring you compassion. I will bring you mercy. It may not be how we look at it. It may not be in the ways that we expect it. But God says, I will bring it. I do not change. You can rest on my promise. And you can rest on this, that in your eyes, while you think the evildoers are succeeding and having pleasure and having success in life, you can rest on this. A day of judgment is coming. Because I do not change. He says in verse 16, Then then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. I wonder what that conversation was like. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see God's people getting together around a table, maybe at their favorite restaurant or coffee shop, Starbucks down the street, and saying, do you remember? Because they got together and they remembered with each other. Do you remember? I'll have a latte, please. Do you remember when our ancestors came out of Egypt and God said, go this way, and Moses was like, dude, I don't know what, huh? This way. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm walking. God, there's a big sea, red sea here. You're telling me to lead our people this way. And God said, yeah. And when you get to it, put your foot and the waters parted. And the nation crossed. And as the enemy was coming behind them and stepped into that, the waters consumed them. And God's people were saved. I wonder if that was their conversation at Starbucks that day. Do you remember what God did? Do you remember how God provided for us when we were in the desert? And our, our, I remember my grandparents or saying that they, their grandparents told stories about manna from heaven feeding them every day. Do you remember that story? Do you remember how God sustained us? Do you remember? Do we remember? 
Can our children say that? Can our children say, you know what, I remember. Our parents used to get together in a small group. We call it something different now. But it was a small group back then and they prayed. Do you remember our parents praying? Do you remember the faith that they had? Do you remember that that property out on Zimmerly Road that was just a farm and some people went to the bank and bought the land? And Do you remember that? Do you remember how our, our parents were praying for this family? And this couple that they were on the brink of disaster and they were about to call it quits and I think I remember that they made it. I think I remember that God did something miraculous in their lives and pulled them back together. And I think I remember that their marriage was restored. Do you remember when our parents got together and they prayed for healing for this person? Yeah, it's temporary because we all die at some point. But, but in that moment and for a season, they prayed for healing. And I remember a report about they were healed. Do you remember when our parents got together and they prayed for the, this family that had nothing? And they got together themselves and they said, we can do this. And they sold some of, they had a garage sale and they took the money from the garage sale and they gave it. They sold their possessions and they gave to people who had need. Do you remember when our parents did that? Those who remembered what God had done returned to Him. And their name was written in a scroll of remembrance. Their name was written in His presence. as They feared the Lord and they honored His name. After they remembered what God had done, they honored Him. I don't understand the world I live in right now. I don't understand why it's all falling apart. I understand this. God does not change. And I can trust Him. He did it then. He did it for our family. He did it in my world. I know He can do it in the future. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm just going to trust. Because God does not change. Their name was written, those who feared the Lord and honored Him. Verse 17, on that day when I act, says God, because I will act, I do not change. I'm telling you, there will be action. They, those who had their name written, those who had remembered, they will be my treasured possession. I will, here it is, I will spare them. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares whose son who does what? The son who serves him. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to have a holy respect for you. 
I'm going to trust you. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why it's not working out. I don't know why my life is this way. I don't know why their life is that way. It doesn't, I don't, all I know is this. When I stop and remember what God has done and His promises and that He does not change, I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to trust. And I'm going to hope. And there it is. Justice and mercy. Working in perfect harmony. Because God is immutable. Verse 18, And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. What's the distinction? That I change. I changed. God didn't change for me. I changed to match Him. I changed my life. I brought my life in conformity to Him. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous have changed to match their God who doesn't change. There was a day when a man's word meant something. Some of you may remember that day where you could spit in your hand and shake the other guy's hand and that meant something, right? Didn't need a contract, didn't need to write anything down. You just shook hands and there was a day when a man's word meant something. Those days may be gone for us. But with God, that day still exists. His word means something. God who calls himself healer still heals. The God who calls himself provider still provides. The God who calls himself faithful is faithful. The God who is just will deal justly. The God who is gracious still offers grace. The God who says he is love still loves everyone unconditionally. The God who says he is the forgiver still forgives sins. Nobody is too far. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody has done something that's unforgivable. The forgiver of sins still forgives sins. And the God who says that He will restore still restores. There was a day when a man's word used to mean something. With God, that day still exists. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the revelation of Yourself to us. Help us this week in whatever we encounter and whatever we do and however we live our lives that we would be people who would remember what You have done. That we would not be pulled off course or distracted by the seeming success of evil in this world but God, that we would stay true, that we would return to You and know full well that when we do, You will return to us. Your promises are true. You do not change. Help us to rest in that. This week, give us courage in all that we encounter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.